pictures. Okay. That may be some of the surprise that that kid would have. I am surprised when we do Bible studies that lately in what we've been studying on Wednesday nights, that God, um, yeah, that in that story of Lot, this one just blows me away, that Lot would say to the men of the city of Sodom that are trying to break down his door to get access to the two visiting angels that they don't know are angels, that he would offer his daughters. That just surprises me when I read that story that he would do such a thing. I'm surprised. We talked about this in our Bible study on Wednesday how would God ask Abraham? How could he ask Abraham to offer his son? There's explanation, but my first reading surprises me. I'm surprised when we go through accounts like in the book of Judges and earlier at the first message we did, how we pointed out that God said, wipe them all out. Just wipe out all those people. First reading without studying any history, it surprises me. It surprises me when we go to the story about jail being commended because she took a tent peg and put it right through the guy's head. It surprises me when with some of the series that we did recently, here when we were in the life of Christ, how Jesus said to the men who wanted to take the money that was being used for the ointment that was poured upon his feet, he said, the poor you have always. Let her alone. We don't need to be charitable to the poor at this moment. I'm surprised when we talked about this in our Unity uh, series, how Barnabas and Paul, two great men, some of those that were pillars of the modern New Testament, how they came into a spot where they got into into a conflict, and then Paul writes later, this was for the glory of God, this was something that was really good. Those things surprise me. It surprises me when we come into the book of Judges and that there's this repeated cycle that the people would rebel against God and then after they rebelled they would get reproof by enemies coming in and taking over. They would repent and after repentance God would send a judge to rescue them and they'd have a period of rest but then they would do it all again. That surprises me that these individuals would, would repeatedly time and again generation after generation make the same old mistake. It surprises me that God is so gracious. That time and time again, when people rebel, when they backslide, that God would forgive them and he would help them and rescue them. One of those stories of rescue is in Judges chapter 6, 7, and 8. It's the story of Gideon. We looked at some of this starting last week. In the story as it unfolds in chapter 6, Gideon is there working in the fields because the Midianites have invaded the land. Every year for the last six years, they come at harvest time. They take away all the crops, all the harvest, the cattle, everything. So he is hiding doing the threshing of the wheat, taking care of the crops, bringing them in. But he's doing it in a hollow, in a wine press, rather than in the threshing floor that would be elevated, would be the most common place used. Instead, he's hiding out. And all of a sudden, he's visited by Jesus. It talks about the angel of the Lord. We mentioned this last week, the angel of the Lord. But then it says, the Lord said to him, the Lord said, I am with you. So it's Jesus Christ appearing in the Old Testament in a Christophany, appearing to... Gideon and in saying to Gideon, you're going to be the one that's going to deliver the people. You're going to be the leader of the military rebellion. We're going to get rid of the Midianites. It's going to be you, Gideon. And God tells him that and Gideon's response is, I'm shocked. Who am I? Chapter 6, verse 15. He says, who am I amongst my family? We're the lowest. I'm the youngest. I, I can't do this. And so Gideon, because of his lack of confidence, Gideon asks God for a sign to make sure that this person who's speaking to him that he doesn't recognize is really from the Lord. He says, give me a sign. Do something mystical. Do something miraculous. And so Gideon then goes away to prepare a meal. When he comes back, the visitor decides to do the miraculous by 
consuming the entire meal that's been prepared in flames. And then himself vanishes. Gideon is convinced. This really was God. This was truly a, a message from the Lord. I am to be the deliverer. I am to be the leader. And he's confident. Now the tables turn. Now in chapter 6, as we concluded last week, we pick up there. God says to Gideon, I want a sign from you. I want to know if you're really committed. I want to know if you're really in this for the long haul. And so God says to him in chapter 6, he gives him this sign that he wants Gideon to fulfill. We jump down into into, uh, verse 25. It came to pass the same night that the Lord said unto Gideon, Take your father's young bullock, even the second bullock of seven years old, throw down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the grove that is by it. The grove is the idea that they would have trees that they would plant in memory of the gods, and they would worship there, and they would do festivals amongst these trees, this little oasis that could be created. And he goes on and it says, And build an altar unto the Lord thy God upon the top of this very rock where you have the altar to Baal. He says, Build the, uh, the, the altar on the rock and in the ordered place and take the second bullock and offer a burnt offering with the wood of the grove which you shall cut down. Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had said to him. And so it was because he feared his father's household and the men of the city that he could not do it by day, that he did it by night. And so we have that account. God says, Gideon, here is what you're supposed to do. God basically draws a line in the sand for Gideon. It's kind of like Colonel Travis. Back in 1836 when you have that, the Alamo taking place, where they're having the Texas Revolution. You've heard it. You've seen it portrayed. That there's the group of men, 181, 182, it's debated which figure. They're in that Alamo. They're there at that old mission. And they're going to be there for a period of time. All they're trying to do is slow down Santa Ana's forces as they march into Texas. And so Colonel Travis has them there. You have Davy Crockett. You have Jim Bowie. You have some of the other volunteers from Tennessee and around the area. And they're there. And their intent was not to stay. But all of a sudden Santa Ana showed up, got surrounded. They thought they were going to be reinforced. You know the story. And so many of them want to leave. And the Colonel Travis, the one military guy there, he gives an impassioned speech about fighting for freedom. And then he draws in the sand, he draws a a line and he says, if you're with me to stay to the end, cross this line. Everyone but one crosses it. That one is the one who escapes, who tells the story about this, this line in the sand. Well, this is the exact same thing that God is doing to Gideon. He's putting a line in the sand and saying, Gideon, are you willing to draw? go to the other side? How much are you really sold out to me? How much does it really mean to you? You believe in me. You, you've done a little altar already, so you're into worship. But how much are you going to really take a stand for me? Here's what I want to, let you, I want to ask of you. Gideon, I want you to tear down your dad's altar. I want you to rebuild a different one. And so this was going to be a really hard task for Gideon. This was something big. This is something really difficult for several reasons. We mentioned some of these last week. He's going to take, away, he's going to take a stand against a spiritual problem. A problem that has become very acceptable. The men of the city... That is, the Jewish men of the city are involved with this worship to Baal. This has become the new God of the community. This is now, instead of Jehovah worship, they are Baal worshipers. And here he is, Gideon, growing up Jewish, Hebrew. He knows better, but they have all converted. Maybe to gain favor with the Midianites. We don't know. 
But there he is, he's, he's going to stand against this pollution, and it is such a rampant pollution spiritually. Look at verse 28. In the morning when the men came to worship, it was a regular thing. They regularly came to this altar, this grove, and worshipped Baal. And so it was a predominant worldliness that was there. And Gideon knew that it was accepted, it was common. He's afraid of the townspeople we read already. That he's fearful of what they would do. This is going to be difficult because all the neighbors are going to get upset. In fact, he's afraid of his dad. He's afraid of his own father's household because it talks about the grove which his father had, the altar which his father had. The sense probably is he was the caretaker. Whether it be on his property or nearby town, his dad was actively involved with it and took some ownership of this Baal worship center. And so his dad's involved with it. He's going to take a stand. He's going to say, tear down something that his dad is worshiping and he knows he's going to get a flack from his dad. He knows that his brother's his siblings, whatever amount they may be, they're going to be upset. He's the least of the household. He's, who is he to take this stand for God? He's, he's the one trying to bring them all under conviction. They're going to get upset. They're going to get mad. In fact, this isn't an easy task. This is going to take the bull, the bullocks, two of them. It's going to take ten men. So this is a good size altar. As I mentioned last week, they've uncovered in some of this region, probably not the same one, but they've uncovered different types of altars like this. The one that they've uncovered that seems to be the pattern, about 25 feet is squared, and then as well as 25 feet in each direction and several feet off the ground. So this is a good size altar. This is a platform, but like this platform, they're going to tear out. And he's going to do it at night because he wants to avoid somebody stopping him. So he's working at night. He's doing it to avoid a confrontation, but it's nearby. So he's got to work silently with 10 men, with two bullocks, ripping apart stone and rebuilding a different altar at that spot. This is a big task. This is a big job. And yet God has asked him to do it and Gideon responds. And he does it immediately. He says, I'm going to do this. This is, this is what you ask of me. I am going to take a stand for Jesus Christ. I'm going to take a step of faith and I'm going to oppose that which is polluting our community. Too often we're kind of like St. Augustine. Who, who we read about how he really gave his life to the Lord later on, but he talks about how as a young man, he had inclinations to want to be religious. He had in his mind that he was going to one day be godly, and he was one day going to serve the Lord. This is before he had any kind of a new birth experience. And he records his foolishness, how as a young person, he was saying, I'm going to serve you, God. I'm going to really give my life to you, but not yet. And the way it was shown was the prayer that he prayed. He prayed, he says, God, give me purity, but not yet. I want to I, I have holiness in my life. I want to be morally pure, but not yet. I want to fool around for a while. Well, not Gideon. When God confronts Gideon and says, you got to make a stand, you got to move forward, he's the type of believer that we ought to be that says, hey, I'm going to take a stand. I'm going to do it now. And so when we look at the story, when we look at how he responded and how he tore down this temple and then how the reaction comes, there are a number of lessons that you and I should be able to walk away with. Let me share those with you this morning. Number one lesson is this. When we are going to serve God, it starts with putting off that which is not good and putting on that which is best. In this case, he has to put off the pollution, the worldliness of this idol that has afflicted and affected their community. He's got to tear it down. And in its place, he's told to build an altar and worship the Lord God Almighty. The same thing is true in many of our lives. There are forbidden idols that need to be put out. Materialism, 
covetousness, the greed, the lust. It could be other people that have taken God's place in our life. It could be entertainment. It could be even something like, like your hobbies and habits or addictions that all of a sudden dominate our life and we're supposed to take them out and replace them with something that is better, best, something that is godly. There are so many illustrations that come out of scriptures. Like in Ephesians 4 where it talks about putting off the old and putting on the new. Putting off the lying and putting on the truth. Putting off the harboring anger instead. Deal with conflicts quickly. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. The idea of instead of stealing from people, you work harder to be charitable. The idea of instead of having bad speech, cussing and cursing. You speak in a way that ministers grace. The idea of instead of becoming bitter towards people and snobbish towards people, you're becoming kind. The idea of putting off the arguing and putting on forgiveness. The idea of putting off the pride and become a humble spirit. The idea of putting off laziness and instead of working, working hard and being, being one of good ethics, instead of, instead of just working when the boss is nearby and in earshot or eyeshot, you're supposed to, Ephesians 6, work not as men pleasers, but as pleasing the Lord. The idea is to put off the youthful lust, but instead have purity in your heart. The idea of putting off the, the selfishness and work at serving other people, ministering to others, putting off the idols of our heart and giving glory to God. There are multiple passages that talk about putting off and putting on. Putting off that which is, that is self-centered, putting on that which is God-centered. And so Gideon is getting challenged. He's being told, this is what you need to do. Put off and put on. That's the first lesson. Second lesson is this. When we start serving the Lord, it starts, it has to start where it's the most difficult, at home, in private, whether your family sees you, whether you're those who are closest to you. Serving God isn't here and here alone. This isn't where it starts. Serving God is when you go when you leave, when you're in your car. Serving God, the real you in his service, is what are you like when all of a sudden you're at home and you're in front of your family, you're in front of your brothers, your sisters, your kids, your parents. The real service for God that is genuine out of your heart is what are you like when there's nobody else around? Is this when you're really serving God? That's what Gideon has to be confronted with, is serving God where it starts at your home, where it starts in your everyday life. It is easy to be in public. It is easy to show spirituality and interest in God here. But what's it like when you're there? When you're at home, when you're most comfortable? And this is where it's hardest. It's so hard because those people around you know you. Your family knows your weaknesses. They know your strength. They know what you've done in the past. They know what you've been like. They also may really give you a hard time because as you make changes, as you say, I'm not going to do that anymore, you may bring conviction into their hearts. They may look and say, well, wait a minute, we did this together. Now you won't do it. You won't, you won't go to this place anymore because you don't think it's honorable. You won't watch this program anymore because you, feel, you think it's filled with all kinds of fleshly filth. You know, who do you think you are? You used to watch that. Who do you think you are? You think you're better than us? That's the reaction. That's what Gideon is fearing. Gideon suspects that's what's going to happen, and it does happen. In fact, let's be honest about it. Jesus said that's the reaction you're going to get when you do what's right. Jesus had prophesied and predicted that no, the prophet is without honor in his own country. That is the idea that your own neighbors, your own family, your own kin are going to be the hardest to try to reach because 
They'll reject you most. Jesus goes to Nazareth. His first message in Nazareth. He preaches the word of God and gives the invitation. And what do they want to do? They grab Jesus, take him out, and they want to throw him off the hillside. Because they don't like what he's saying. They know him. Who is this? He's the carpenter's son. How dare him tell us? He predicted that in the future, in our age, that brother would betray brother, father the son, the children would rise up against the parents. What is he saying? There's going to come opposition to the gospel. When you start living right, not all will like it. They won't appreciate it. Now, you don't go out and pick a fight, but they will come to you. Satan will attack in this regards. And you need to stand. You need to say, okay, I'm going to serve God. And you make decisions to serve God at home first. Where your family sees, what about purity? What about your speech? At work, where you're every day rubbing shoulders. What about the jokes you tell? What about the language you use? What, what's it like when you're by your closest friends? What do you do for activities? And what do you do for entertainment? How pure are you? That's where it matters. As far as your dedication, that's where the line is drawn in the sand to say, are you real? Are you really serving the Lord? There's another thought. We mentioned this last week, that what he's saying here is serving God requires us to be faithful, not fearless. Gideon is going to serve the Lord. We already read that Gideon is tearing down the temple. But when he tears down that temple, he's afraid. He's afraid of his father. He's afraid of the city dwellers. Paul was afraid. Paul says, I, when I came to you in Corinth, I came in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. My preaching, my, and preaching was not with enticing words, but I came. I had a nervousness when I preached, he said. I had an anxiety, if you would, for getting up. But this is what I was supposed to do. And it works that way many times. Many times serving the Lord is a scary thing. Serving the Lord, getting baptized, giving a public testimony, it's a scary thing. It's a nerve-wracking thing. Teaching young people, it's a scary thing. Giving out a gospel tract can be a scary thing. Standing up to co-workers and saying, listen, I'm not going to, I'm not going to get involved with cheating or stealing or, or taking advantage. It's a scary thing. You're, you're, you're wondering what's going to be their reaction. Telling your family that you're going to start worshiping on a regular basis and reading your Bible. It's a scary thing that they're going to give you a flack. It's a scary thing at school to all of a sudden say, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to stand for the word of God. I'm going to do this term paper. I could lose a good grade because... I'm not going to give in on this idea of evolution versus God's creation. It's a scary thing. But when you draw that line in the sand and step for the Lord, listen, God wants you to be faithful. He doesn't require you to be fearless, but to be faithful to do what's right. He requires you to take a stand at home, to have purity and godliness and service there. God wants us to put off and put on. There's another lesson that you and I should be focusing on. But before I explain it, I need to just do terminology. You know what an oxymoron is? Okay, the oxymoron is taking two contradictory words, putting them side by side to give a thought. And they don't seem to fit, but they give an idea. It's kind of like this, clearly misunderstood. Found missing. Act naturally. Seriously funny. Pretty ugly. Contradictory words that are used in a descriptive way. Where you have big baby, open secret. Where you have the original copy. All of the, the living dead. All of these are oxymorons. The idea that they, they, they sound contradictory, but they're used in order to stress a point. Let me give you one of those. 
in this next statement. The next statement goes this way. Our serving God in small, big ways prepares us to be used in bigger ways. When we serve in small, big ways, it prepares us for bigger opportunities for the Lord. That's what happens in Gideon's case. Gideon says, I'm tearing down the altar. He tears it down. How was that used by God in Gideon's life? Watch the story. Watch how it unfolds now. When the men in the city arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was cast down. The grove was cast down by, that was by it. The second bullock was offered upon the altar that was built. And they said one to another, who did this? And they inquired, they asked, and they said, it was Gideon, the son of Joash, he did this thing. Then the men of the city said to Joash, bring out your son. They're really serious about this altar. They're going to kill him, that he may die. These guys are Jehovah worshipers. These are Jews who are defending Baal with capital punishment. This this shows you how bad it's gotten. Because he hath cast down the altar of Baal, and because he hath cut down the grove that was by it. Now, Dad, who is the caretaker, who has been promoting and working with this false worship, look what Dad does. Joash said unto all that stood against him, against his son, Are you guys going to plead for Baal? Are you going to save Baal? He that will plead for him, let him be put to death while it is yet morning. If he be a god, let him plead for himself, because one hath cast down his altar. Dad is basically defending what his son has done. He is saying, what we've been doing is wrong. The worship that we've been doing, and we're not going to defend it. Therefore, what happens, verse 32, on that day and going forward, Gideon is called Jeroboam, saying, let Baal plead against himself, because he hath thrown down his altar. And then it talks about the battle taking place. This idea of getting a new name was huge for Gideon. Do you remember that Gideon said in chapter 6, verse 15, how can I save Israel from the Midianites? Who am I? How can I afford to, to foot the price for a battle for an army? I'm the, I'm the least one. I'm from the tribe of Manasseh, which is not the military tribe. If I blow a trumpet, they're not going to rally because we have a reputation. We don't of being warriors. And besides, I'm the youngest in the family, the least in the family. They're not going to listen to me. But after he tears down this altar, he gets a new name. The new name sticks with him. You go to chapter 7, verse 1, and it's become the name that everybody knows him by. That all of a sudden he's known throughout the nation as Jeroboam. The idea that what this is, is that he's the one who is going to fight against Baal. And the reputation goes, literally the idea has he's a Baal fighter. And the word goes out, we've got a Baal fighter. We've got a champion to lead our cause. God used this small, big test in a big way. It gave Gideon the prominence he needed. It gave him the reputation he needed. It gave him the, the idea of confidence that other people would have in him because of what he had done. God used the situation and the reputation stuck. So they're talking and calling him that later on in the next chapter and two. That that name because his, becomes his name. They rally to him when he blows the trumpet. Why? He's Jeroboam. He's the, he's the Baal fighter. He's taking a stand. And God is able to give this nothing something that can be used to bring the people to fight in the battle. See, God used the small efforts to prepare for bigger uh, battles in the future. It happens all the time. 
You go through history and you find individuals. John Knox, great reformer there in Scotland. What he had done, he had been doing Bible studies. And as a result of doing Bible studies, he's put by the French in one of their slave ships because he's talking about the Bible, talking about the Bible on one-on-one, sharing the Bible, sharing the Bible. He's in this slave trip, uh, slave ship for a, for a couple years, and he's like everybody else. He's being beaten. He's being persecuted. Others are there who are criminals. Others who are there who are thieves. He's there because he taught people the Bible one-on-one. And so he's in this, this ship, and they tell the day when all of a sudden one of the priests from the, the Catholic Church comes walking through with the idol of Mary and is having everyone kiss the idol. And everyone is supposed to do their worship that way. When they get to John Knox, he grabs the idol and he pitches it out the window into the ocean. Well, the people standing there are aghast. The prisoners, the soldiers, especially the priest. Okay? So they're all, they want to beat him and he, he makes a comment. He says, if she is such a miracle worker, let her swim. <laughs> that stopped everybody in the boat. That's right. If she can save others, let her save herself. The statue sinks. They are impressed. The captain of the ship orders that no more priests are allowed on to make every course, everybody to do this worship. In fact, what happened after that is they asked Knox to preach to the rest of the people on the ship. And through that experience, he developed a preaching ability not just a one-on-one Bible study, but a preaching ability that when he gets released, he goes into Scotland and he starts preaching and becomes this, this nationwide preacher that creates this tremendous reformation. In Why? Because he took a stand at this one small way and it opened up doors that developed bigger skills for bigger ministry. That's the way God works. You and I have to be willing to take that one small, but it's big to us, take that one small step. That one small step might be praying in public before a meal. That one small step might be giving out a tract. That one small step might be helping in a class where the kids are being taught. That one small step might be just, you know, making a meal for someone, going and visiting Somebody who's in a rest home, a widow, and spending some time. It it, it might be doing a ministry for somebody by picking up groceries, helping them do a... it's a, it's, It's a big step for you. But it's a small step in the bigger picture, and yet it's a big step for you to memorize a verse of Scripture a week. That's a big step for many. To have devotions is a big step for most people. Watch how God can use it. If you are willing to take a big step... For many, it seems so small. But for for some of us, a big step of saying, I'm not going to say that critical comment. For most of us, that's huge. It's small, but it's huge. I'm not going to spread that gossip. I'm not going to repeat that innuendo. I'm I'm not going to use that normal oath, cuss word, or or whatever I say, and just cut my speech. I'm not going to tell the jokes like I usually tell them. I'm going to take a big step. I'm going to stay away from that person who is influencing me to do wrong. And I'm going to cut off that friendship. That's a big step for most of us. Small in the scope of eternity, but it's a big step that God can use. 
Where we say, okay, I'm I'm not going to watch. For some of you, it's a huge step. I'm not going to watch that program anymore where they talk a lot about sex. I'm not going to do that because it doesn't help me. Those are big steps that God can use in phenomenal ways. Number five. Number five. Our serving God in these small, big ways not only helps you, but it can impact others. God can use it in other people's lives right now. This is what happens with Joash. Gideon took a stand. Gideon stands against, tears down the altar, and his dad's response. His dad has a transformation in these verses. His dad has a moment of from backsliding to revival that we've already read. That all of a sudden his dad, after it's destroyed, they're coming to dad and saying, Dad, bring out your son, we're going to kill him. But his dad's response is phenomenal. He says, let Baal defend Baal. Wait a minute, you're the guy who led us in worship last week. You're the guy who said you, you would donate the land for, Baal, for a Baal altar. Now, now you're saying, not anymore. I want nothing to do with Baal anymore. What changed Joash's heart? What brought him back to the sense where he makes the comment? Did you see where he said, He that will plead for Baal, let him be put to death while it is morning. What is he recalling? He's recalling Old Testament passages. That if you worship a false god, you should be stoned. And now he's saying capital punishment for somebody who opposed Baal? Are you kidding? Capital punishment for anybody who still wants to promote Baal. That's where his dad is. What caused dad to change? Who influenced dad that way? Where dad now rejects Baal worship and says, I'm going to do what's right. It's got to be who? Gideon. Gideon is the right word to say he shamed his father into revival and repentance. Is that the right way to phrase it? I don't know. But I know what happens. One of the fathers here was talking about how, how just a few months ago they were spending a Saturday. Their Saturday was doing all kinds of stuff with the kids. And so this day was busy, you know, doing the different things that they were doing and having a family fun day. To the point that they get home beyond the normal evening time that they had planned, which is typical. And, you know, get home and it's later and dad's thinking, we got to get the things moving. We got to get kids in tomorrow's church. We got to get these kids moving. And, okay, got to give them their baths. We got to get them the jammies. Got to get them so that they're going to bed and unwound. And dad says, okay, let's go. Let's hurry, hurry, hurry. And he's getting them. And one of the kids says, what about our Bible story because dad was in the habit of reading a bible story and dad just said well we're going to skip that tonight and one of the younger children who didn't understand devotions and how to say it just said we're not having commotions tonight and normally it was commotions as dad said and he said well not tonight we can just wait until tomorrow you're going to see hear enough about jesus at church and the older child with respect said Dad, I'm not sure that pleases Jesus. That we put all the fun stuff is okay, but we put Jesus later on. Was the child right? We've all been there. We've all been getting a moment where all of a sudden the Holy Spirit of our children speaks to us and brings deep conviction. Well, that's what happens to Joash. His son takes a stand and it impacts his life. And all of a sudden, dad. And isn't this interesting? Gideon was afraid of dad's reaction. 
Gideon feared his dad. That's why he did some of this at night. He, he, was, he was certain his dad would respond with anger and maybe a physical attack. But instead, God used it. God used the son taking a stand for Christ and making a decision to impact others in the family who already had a, a, a covenant relationship but had backslidden. That's the way God works. God can use you by making a change. God can use you to impact others that somewhat you're afraid of. How will that friend act? How will that person be? If I do, you know, if I seek to influence them, if I seek to tell them to trust in the Lord more, it may work. If I seek to tell them we, we're going to minister more, and here's what we're going to do, it may work that God uses it in their life. If, if you say to a friend who you're afraid of what that friend's going to say when you say, I'm not going to go there anymore. I'm not going to get involved with that activity anymore. I'm not going to hit, I'm not going bar hopping with you anymore. I'm not going to listen to that garbage stuff, that music that, that talks about all kinds of impurities. I'm not going to do that anymore. God might use you to bring into the mind and in the heart another Christian to have holiness in their life. To have greater purity in their mind. God using you to say, hey, we're going we're gonna to start getting in church on a regular basis. You fear what the rest of the family may say. And God may be waiting to use that for you to cross the line in the sand. But you got to cross it. you got to be willing to say, I'm going to step out for Christ and let Christ use me in a way that I don't suspect. Number six. Our serving God in small ways allows the Holy Spirit greater freedom to work in us more and more and more. This is the most critical thought in this text. Where all of a sudden we read that what happens. He has now impacted his family. He's got their support. He's now blowing the trumpet. And the nations, the people around are hearing about Jeroboam and they're coming to him. But there's a phrase down in verse 34 that is often overlooked. The spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon and he blows the trumpet. The next scene is what we'll look at tonight is how he's getting ready, waiting for all the army to come up. He throws out the fleece. But right now we have him where he's parked right there where the spirit of the Lord comes upon him. This is a tremendous passage. It's a tremendous thought to have the Spirit of the Lord come upon you. This is an instance in the Old Testament of what we would call the filling of the Spirit. Now, for many people, they don't understand what it is. And there's a confusion between the filling of the Spirit in Old Testament, New Testament. Let me see if I can give you a, a, just a brief description of what we're talking about. In the Old Testament, the filling of the Spirit operated this way. It was limited in extent. It was limited in purpose. It was limited in duration. What I mean by limited extent is this. Not all Old Testament believers could be or would be filled with the Spirit. Only certain people would have this work of the Spirit come upon them. It was very selective by the Holy Spirit. As well, the purpose was to enable those individuals to do some important task. Some important uh, military deed or prophecy or be able to do artistry where they could build in the tabernacle. But it was very limited. 
Okay, only certain people had the filling of the Spirit and only for certain tasks, which meant that once that task is done, the filling of the Spirit could cease. It wouldn't come upon them. They had no control of it. They had no input to it. God chose them to do this job, gave the Spirit for this period of time while they did the job, and that was it. Jeremiah predicted that come with the new covenant, which we live under, which Jesus says, this is the blood, this is the bread of the new covenant. When Jesus introduced it, it changed. There was a change in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. There was a change in this regard that the Holy Spirit now came and indwelt people, which means the filling of the Spirit is unlimited, which means it's unlimited in extent, in purpose, in duration. The filling of the Spirit could be for every believer because every believer has the Spirit living within them. That means every believer can have the Spirit fill them, give them the abilities, give them the strength, help them through day by day. As well, this filling had a different purpose in the New Testament. It wasn't just for a job, though it could be, but it was for an enablement for a ministry at times, but it was more for dealing with character, dealing with attitude, dealing with maturity, helping you to grow. Not just do a job, that's there, but much more, become. Because in the New Testament era, we, God is more interested in what we are than what we do. And so he wants you to become conformed to the image of Christ. And so he's working. The duration of this, since the Holy Spirit is available to us, all of us who are born again, all the time we can have the filling of the Spirit all day, all day, every day. The key is how we respond to the Spirit. The idea of this filling of the Spirit in the New Testament is very simple. We all need it. Every one of us needs it. To the believers, he writes and he says, be ye filled with the Spirit. It's a command. Literally, it has the idea of allow yourself to be filled by the Spirit. Allow yourself to be clothed by the Spirit, if you would. Now, when the Spirit comes in and fills us, here's where some people fear. When the Holy Spirit is filling them, when the Holy Spirit is controlling them, then they'll lose their individual identity. identity. I, I, you know, I, I want to be my own person. But the Holy Spirit taking over and you allowing him to control doesn't lose you. You've all been wondering what, kind, what I'm doing with this stuff right here. You're wondering if we're selling it. No. You're wondering if it's leftovers from the kitchen that people haven't claimed. No. Some of you are wondering what this is. I should describe for those young people who haven't a clue. This is a radio. Okay. And a CD player, okay? But they, they're all different. They do different things, okay? They're like us. They're like us. Some are lights. They shine in the darkness. They give, peop- they give other people some serenity, some peace, some confidence. Some of us are loud. We go in and, man, we can rip things apart. But we have a job for God. Tear down, tear out. Some of us are what you are craving right now. That's soothing, comforting coffee. Some of you fill up hearts. You fill up lives. Some of you are very musical. Some of us, hot air. (laughs) And make a lot of it. Filling the Spirit with all these appliances is like the one thing they all have in common. You know what it is. 
They're all electrical appliances. They all need what? If they're plugged in to the same source, does it change its purpose? Does it all of a sudden lose its identity? Not at all. But they can't operate. They can't do their job unless they're filled with the Spirit. Neither can you. You've been gifted by God. Some of us to blow hot air. Some of us to soothe other people. Some to be medicinal. Some of us to go in and tear out. Some of us have the job of opening the light and letting people understand the dark, the dark truths that are hidden at times. But you can't do it without the filling of the Spirit. You can't become soothing in your heart. You can't change yourself without the Holy Spirit being allowed to control you. And when he does, you're still you. You still have uniqueness, but you're empowered to accomplish all that God wants to do in you and through you. We need this filling of the Spirit. This filling of the Spirit in the New Testament, it's depending upon our willingness. We basically say yes or no. We are not forced to be filled. He commands us to allow yourselves to be filled with the Spirit. He doesn't, you, you already, if you're born again, you've got the Holy Spirit within you. But that doesn't mean you're filled with the Spirit. That doesn't mean he's in control. You determine how much does he control. You determine if he's going to have control of your mouth, your eyes, your finances, your attitude, your interactions, your worship. You control that. You control whether or not the Spirit will guide you when you come to a place like this to worship, whether you'll listen. Whether you'll really worship from the heart and sing praises. Or if it's just mechanical. You control that. You say yes to the Spirit, whether or not when the Word is preached and something comes to your heart and the Spirit tries to pick out something in your life to change, are you going to listen to it or are you just going to shut it down and say, well, I've been that way all my life. So-and-so, they're like that and it doesn't... This filling of the Spirit is something so important, so necessary. How does it happen? The word that is used in this text is so descriptive, it's very simply this. This is Gideon. This is what the word means. The Spirit was clothed upon by Gideon. So when the Spirit does this, so does Gideon. When the Spirit does this, so does Gideon. When the Spirit moves, it is letting the Spirit take control of your clothes. And you, none of you had this happen this morning, I don't think. I don't think any of you had an argument with your clothes this morning. I don't think you went there and said, I want to wear that pair of shoes. And they say, not today, buddy. And they slithered away. You know, I, I grinned and bore it last week. None of you had this thing where you reach for a sweater because it's cold out. And the sweater said, not today. I heard the wind through the howling of the night. I'm not going out. You're, you're on your own, big dude. You didn't have that. The clothes... We're totally submissive to your direction, your leading. That's the filling of the Spirit. That's what happened to Gideon. He was literally, the Spirit is clothed by Gideon. He took charge. He's moving on the inside. So the big question comes down to this is, when we look at Gideon's life, can you honestly say you're filled with the Spirit this morning? That he is in charge. That he controlled your attitude 
on the way to worship, when somebody was that slow driver in front. When, when the Spirit all of a sudden says, wait a minute, you need an attitude adjustment. Who's in charge here this morning? Who's in charge when all of a sudden the Spirit wants to take control of your time, your wallet? Who's in charge when all of a sudden the Spirit wants you to take an act of obedience? And you say, no, others can do that, but I don't need to. Who's in charge when all of a sudden the Spirit says, I want you to change your attitude at home. I want you to be respectful towards parents and listen. I want you not to lie and deceive and to cheat. I want you as a young person to be forthright, open, and honest and not deceiving your folks. I want you in your marriage to respect your partner, love, lead, labor for them, lift them up. When the Spirit points that out, how do you respond? When the Spirit all of a sudden says, hey, this week, I would like you to take a tract. It's going to be a big, a small, big step. I want you to give a tract to so-and-so at work. How are you going to react? How are you going to react when all of a sudden the Spirit says, I want you to change your speech. I want you to put off the filth. I want you to put off the gossip. I want you to put off the negativity. I want you to be a thankful person. How are you going to respond? You see, in, in Gideon's case, this is what's going to make the difference in his life. And he's not going to be perfect. But what God was doing was enabling him to live the job that God wanted him to do. We got a bigger job. God is living within you who are born again. And he wants to fill you. He wants you to give him control. And Gideon is used in a mighty way. And so can you be in that sense. See, let, me, let me see if we can wrap it up with this thought. Okay? Bottom line is this, and don't close up. This is critical right now. Don't distract from somebody else. Gideon's big changes come in his life because, number one, he had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. He, Jesus comes to him and says, Gideon, I want you. Have you had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ? The Spirit of the Lord is come by the direction of Jesus Christ. He knocks on your heart's door and he says to you, I want to forgive you your sins. I want to save you from your sins. I want to give you eternal life. I died for you. I rose again for you. You need to repent of your sins and ask me to give you eternal life. How are you going to respond to that encounter? How are you going to respond when Christ wants to be your savior? Are you going to say, no, I'm going to do it on my own. I'm good enough. I'm bad enough that I can make it to heaven without Jesus. But Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes unto the Father but by me. Gideon's change starts with a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. So does yours. Is there a moment that that is yet to happen? Has happened, or is it yet to happen? It could be today. You call upon Christ. Secondly, he has a public display of obedience to Christ. Do you? Do you? The line in the sand was drawn for Gideon. God has drawn many lines in the sand for you. First one, baptism. Standing up and giving witness and testimony for Christ at home, at work. Putting off, putting on. Then the third area of his life that caused great change was he let the Spirit fill him. Will you? Will you? 
There's a song that we want to sing this morning. A song that is praying to the Lord and saying, Lord, I'm genuine. This is me. I want you to search me. I want you to deal with me. This song comes out of an experience where there was preaching done by James Orr. He's in New Zealand. He's working amongst the tribal folk. They're sharing the word of God, talking about the filling of the Spirit. And as he preached upon it, there was a revival that broke out. People started confessing sins one to another. People started changing and saying, I've got, to, I've got to put something out of my life. They started saying, I want to stand up for Christ and take a step of obedience. He said there was great revival that hit this one village and then the next village and the next village. He's ready to leave and to fly out. And he had two different young ladies come up to him and they sang a song to him. A song of thankfulness. It's this melody. On his flight home, he comes back and he writes different words to that very same melody. The melody is, search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. Test me. Beautiful song, but it's meaningless unless it comes from your heart.